Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper, read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 21 Gretchen stopped whatever she'd been saying, her mouth frozen mid-word as Fork drove his damaged car into the pub car park. She was talking to Scott Whitlam on the pavement as Lockie played around her feet. In his mirror, Fork could see them staring as he parked. Bugger, he said under his breath. It was only a few hundred metres from the police station to the pub, but it had felt like a long journey through the centre of town. He got out of the car, the silver scrapings in the paint winking at him as he slammed the door. Oh my God, when did that happen? Gretchen ran up with Lockie in tow. The little boy waved at Fork before turning his wide-eyed attention to the car. He reached out a stubby finger to trace the carved letters, and to Fork's horror began sounding out the first word before Gretchen hastily pulled him away. She sent him to play on the other side of the car park and he reluctantly sloped off to poke things down a drain. Who's done this? she said, turning back. I don't know, Fork said. Whitlam gave a low, sympathetic whistle as he walked slowly around the car. Someone really went to town. What did they use, knife or screwdriver or something? Yeah, I really don't know. Bunch of bastards, Whitlam said. This place... It's worse here than in the city sometimes. Yeah, okay? Gretchen touched Fork's elbow. Yeah, Fork said. Better than the car at any rate. He felt a stab of anger. He'd had that car for more than six years. Nothing flashed, but it had never caused him any trouble. Didn't deserve to be wrecked by some country moron. We will skin you. Fork turned to Whitlam. It's about something from the past. This girl we were friends with. It's okay, Whitlam gave a nod. I've heard the story. Gretchen ran a finger over the marks. Aaron, listen, you need to be careful. I'll be fine. It's annoying, but no, it's worse than that. Yeah, well, what more are they really going to do? Skin me? She paused. I don't know. Look at the Hadlers. That's a bit different. You sure? I mean, you don't really know. Fork looked to Whitlam for support, but the principal gave a shrug. It's a pressure cook around here, mate. Little things become big things faster than you expect. You'd know that, though. It wouldn't hurt to be a bit careful, especially with both things coming on the same day. Fork stared at him. Both things? Whitlam shot a glance at Gretchen, who shifted uncomfortably. I'm sorry, he said. I thought you'd have seen them by now. What? 
Whitland took a square of paper from his back pocket and handed it to him. Fork unfolded it. A hot wind rustled the dead leaves around their feet. Who's seen this? Neither of them answered. Fork looked up. Well? Everyone. They're all around town. The fleece was busy, but Fork could hear McMurdo's Celtic twang rising over the cacophony. He stopped in the doorway behind Whitlam. I'm not entering into a debate with you, my friend, McMurdo was saying from behind the bar. Look around. This is a pub. This is not a democracy. He was clutching a handful of screwed-up flyers in his large fist. They were the same as the one burning a hole in Fork's pocket, and he had to fight the urge to take it out and look at it again. It was a crude reproduction, probably photocopied 500 times at the town's tiny library. Across the top in bold capitals were the words, R.I.P. Ellie Deacon, age 16. Below was a photo of Fork's father, aged in his early 40s. Next to it was a hastily taken snap of Fork himself that appeared to have been shot as he left the pub. He was caught in a sideways glance, his face frozen in a momentary grimace. Underneath the photos in smaller type were the words, These men were questioned about the drowning of Ellie Deacon. More information needed. Protect our town. Keep Kiwara safe. Earlier in the car park, Gretchen had given him a hug. Bunch of absolute dickheads, she'd whispered in his ear. But watch yourself anyway. She'd scooped up a protesting Lockie and left. Whitlam had ferried Fork towards the pub, waving away his protests. They're like sharks in here, mate, Whitlam had said. They'll pounce at the first sign of blood. Your best move is to sit in there with me and have a cold beer as is our God-given right as men born under the Southern Cross. Both now stopped in the entrance. A large purple-faced man, who Falk remembered had once turned his back on Eric Falk in the street, was arguing across the bar with McMurdo. The man stabbed a finger emphatically at the flyers and said something Falk didn't catch, and the barman shook his head. I don't know what to suggest, my friend, McMurdo said. You want to protest about something, you get yourself a pen and paper and write to your MP. But the place to do it is not in here. He moved to shove the flyers in the bin, and as he did, he caught Falk's eye across the room. He gave a tiny shake of his head. Let's go, Falk said to Whitlam and backed away from the entrance. Thanks anyway, but it's not a good idea. Think you might be right, unfortunately. Christ, it's like deliverance around here sometimes. Whitlam said. What are you going to do? All up in my room, I suppose. Go through some papers. Hope it blows over. Stuff that. Come and have a drink at mine. No, thanks though. It's better if I lie low. No, that doesn't sound better at all. Come on, but we'll take my car, eh? Whitlam fished out his keys with a grin. It would do my wife good to meet you. It might help reassure her a bit. His smile dimmed a fraction, then brightened. And anyway, I've got something to show you. Whitlam texted his wife from the car and they drove in silence through the town. You're not worried about me being seen at your house? Fork said eventually. He thought back to the incident in the park. The school mums won't be impressed. Stuff them, Whitlam said, his eyes on the road. Maybe it'll teach them something. 
Judge not lest ye be judged by a gang of small-minded nutjobs or however it goes. So, who do you think's been sending out your fan mail? Mal Deacon, probably, or his nephew Grant. Whitlam frowned. I think Grant's more likely. Apparently Deacon isn't all there these days. Mentally, I mean. I don't really know. I don't get involved with those two. Don't need the hassle. You might be right, Falk stared gloomily out of the window. He thought of his car, the silver words scratched into the paintwork. But neither of them are above getting their hands dirty. Whitlam looked at him, weighing up Falk's response. Then he shrugged. He'd turned off the main street and was navigating the warren that was the closest thing Kiwara had to a suburban estate. The houses seemed tight and manicured after the sprawling farmhouses, and some of the lawns were actually green. No easier way to advertise you use fake turf, Falk thought. Whitlam pulled up on a paved courtyard outside a smart family home. Nice place, Falk said. Whitlam made a face. Suburbia in the countryside, worst of both worlds. Half the neighbouring places are empty, which is a pain. Security risk, you know. We get a lot of kids messing around. But everyone in farming lives on their land and there's not much in town to attract anyone else. He shrugged. Still, it's only rented, so we'll see. He led Fork through into a cool, shining kitchen where his wife was making coffee with a rich, deep aroma on a complicated machine. Sandra Whitlam was a slender, pale-skinned woman with large green eyes that gave the impression that she was permanently startled. Whitlam introduced them, and she shook Fogg's hand with a vague air of suspicion, but pointed him towards a comfortable kitchen chair. Beer, mate? Whitlam called to him as he opened the fridge. Sandra, who was in the process of placing three china cups on the counter, paused. Didn't you just come home from the pub? Her voice was light but she didn't turn to look at her husband as she spoke. Yeah, well, we didn't quite get inside in the end, Whitlam said with a wink at Fork. Sandra pressed her lips into a thin line. Coffee's fine, thanks, Sandra, Fork said. Smells good. She gave him a tight smile and Whitlam shrugged and closed the fridge. She poured them each a cup and patted around the kitchen in silence, placing various cheese and cracker combinations on a plate. Fork sipped his coffee and glanced down at a framed family photo propped up near his elbow. It showed the couple with a small, sandy-haired girl. Your daughter? He said to fill the quiet. Danielle. Whitlam picked up the frame. She'll be round here somewhere. He glanced at his wife, who had paused mid-action at the sink when she'd heard the little girl's name. She's watching TV in the back room, Sandra said. She okay? Sandra just shrugged and Whitlam turned back to Fork. Danielle's quite confused, to be honest, he said. I told you she was friends with Billy Hadler, but she doesn't really understand what's happened. Thank goodness, Sandra said, folding the tea towel in her hands into a tight, angry square. I hope she never has to understand something as horrific as that. Every time I think about it, it makes me feel sick. What that bastard did to his own wife and child, hell's too good for him. She reached over to the counter and cut a thin slice of cheese, forcing the knife hard through the block until it struck the board below with a sharp knock. Whitlam cleared his throat lightly. Aaron used to live here in town. He was friends with Luke Hadler when they were younger. Well, maybe he was different back then. Sandra was unabashed. She raised her eyebrows at Fork. 
So you grew up here in Kiwara. Must have felt like a long few years. It had its moments. You're not enjoying it then? Sandra gave a tight laugh. <laughs> it hasn't exactly been the fresh start we were expecting, she said, her voice clipped. For Danielle? Or any of us? No, well, I'm not the best person to defend this place to you, Fork said. But you know what happened to the Hadlers was a once-in-a-lifetime incident, if that. That may be so, Sandra said, but it's the attitude around here that I can't understand. I hear some people almost sympathising with Luke Hadler, saying how hard he must have been finding things, and I want to shake them. I mean, how stupid can you be? Never mind what Luke was going through. Who cares? Can you imagine what Billy and Karen's last moments were like? But there's this, I don't know, parochial pity for him. And, she pointed a manicured finger at Fork, I don't care if he took his own life as well. Killing your wife and child is the ultimate domestic abuse. Nothing more, nothing less. For a long moment, the only sound in the kitchen was the coffee maker steaming away on the pristine counter. It's OK, love, you're not the only person who feels that way, Whitlam said. He reached across the kitchen counter and put his hand over his wife's. She was blinking rapidly, her mascara smudging around the edges. She left her hand there for a moment before slipping it away to reach for a tissue. Whitlam turned to Fork. It's been terrible for all of us. Losing a student, Danielle losing a little buddy. Sandra feels for Karen, obviously. Sandra made a small noise in her throat. He said Billy was supposed to come over to play the afternoon he died, Fork said, remembering the conversation at the school. Yes. Sandra blew her nose and busied herself pouring more coffee while she almost visibly pulled herself together. We used to have him over quite a lot, and vice versa. Danielle would go to their place as well. They got on like a house on fire. It was quite sweet, really. She really misses him. She can't understand that he's not coming back. So this was a regular arrangement? Forecast. Not regular, but certainly not unusual, Sandra said. I hadn't organised anything with Karen for that week, but then Danielle found this junior badminton set we got her for her last birthday. She and Billy were terrible at it, but they used to love messing about with it. She hadn't used it for a while, but suddenly got completely fixated on it, you know how children are, and wanted Billy to come over as soon as possible to play with it. So when did you speak to Karen to set something up? Fork asked. I think it was the day before, wasn't it? Sandra looked at her husband, who shrugged. Well, I think it was. Because remember, Danielle was pestering you to put the badminton net up in the garden. Anyway, I called Karen that night and asked if Billy wanted to come home with Danielle the next day. She said yes, okay, and that was it. How did she sound? Sandra frowned as though taking a test. Fine, I thought, she said. It's difficult to remember. Maybe a bit distracted. It was only a short conversation though, and it was late-ish, so we didn't chat. I offered, she accepted, and that was that. Until? Until I got a call from her the next day, just after lunchtime. Sandra Whitlam speaking. Sandra, hi, it's Karen here. Oh, hi, how are you going? There was a brief pause, followed by a tiny noise, perhaps a laugh down the line. <laughs> Good question. 
Look, Sandra, I'm so sorry to do this to you, but Billy can't come over this afternoon after all. Oh, that's a shame, Sandra said, suppressing a groan. Now she or Scott or possibly both would be on call for at least a couple of rounds of junior badminton that evening. She mentally drew up a list of potential last-minute stand-ins. Is everything okay? she asked, a fraction late. Yes, it's just... The line went quiet, and for a moment Sandra thought they'd been cut off. He's been a bit under the weather lately. I think it's better if he comes straight home today. I'm sorry, I hope Danielle won't be too disappointed. Sandra felt a stab of guilt. No, honestly, don't be silly. It can't be helped if he's not 100%. Probably wise, especially with what Danielle's got in mind. We can rearrange. Another silence. Sandra glanced at the clock on the wall. Below, her to-do list fluttered against the corkboard. Yes, Karen said finally. Yes, maybe. Sandra had farewell pleasantries on the tip of her tongue when she heard Karen sigh down the line. She hesitated. Show me a mother of school-aged children who didn't sigh on a daily basis and she'd show you a woman with a nanny. Still, curiosity got the better of her. Karen, is everything all right? There was a silence. Yes. A long pause. Is everything all right with you? Sandra Whitlam rolled her eyes and glanced again at the clock. If she left for town right now, she could be back in time to put the washing out and ring around to find a replacement for Billy before the school run. Fine, Karen. Thanks for letting me know about Billy. I hope he's on the mend soon. Speak later. I feel guilty every single day about that phone call, Sandra said, refilling the coffee cups yet again like a nervous tick. The way I rushed off the phone like that, perhaps she needed someone to talk to and I just... She teared up before she could finish her sentence. You weren't to blame, love. How could you know what was going to happen? Whitlam stood and put his arms around his wife. Sandra stood a little stiffly and glanced in embarrassment at Falk as she wiped her eyes with a tissue. I'm sorry, she said. It's just that she was such a nice person. She was one of the people who made it bearable to be here. Everyone loved her, all the school mums, probably some of the school dads. She started to give a little laugh that she cut dead in her throat. Oh, God, no, I didn't mean... Karen would never. I just meant she was popular. Fork nodded. It's okay, I understand. She was obviously well-liked. Yes, exactly. There was a silence. Fork drained his coffee and stood up. It's probably time I made a move anyway. Leave you in peace. Whitlam swallowed the last mouthful of his own coffee. Hang on, mate, I'll take you back in a minute, but I've got something to show you first. You'll like it. Come and see. Fork said goodbye to a still teary Sandra and followed Whitlam through to a cosy home office. He could hear the muffled sound of a cartoon playing from somewhere down the hall. The office had a far more masculine feel than what he'd seen of the rest of the house, with furniture that was battered but well-loved. Along the walls ran floor-to-ceiling bookshelves crammed with sports books. You've got half a library in here, Fork said, scanning the contents of the shelves, which ranged from cricket to harness racing, biographies to almanacs. You're obviously a fan. Whitlam bowed his head in mock disgrace. My postgrad was in modern history, but to be honest, all my research focused on sports history. Racing, boxing, origins of match fixing, etc. So all the fun stuff. 
but I like to think I still know my way around your standard dusty and faded document. Fork smiled. I have to admit I hadn't pegged you as the dusty document type, he said. A common mistake, but I can mine those archives with the best of them. Speaking of which... He pulled a large envelope out of the desk drawer and handed it to Fork. I thought you might find this interesting. Fork opened it and pulled out a photocopy of a black and white team photo. Young men from Kiwara's 1948 First Eleven cricket side had donned their best whites and lined up for the camera. Their tiny faces were washed out and fuzzy, but sure enough there, seated middle of the first row, Fork saw a familiar face. His grandfather. Fork felt a lift in his chest as he saw the name typed neatly in the team list below. Captain. Fork. J. This is fantastic. Where did you find it? Library. Thanks to my tightly honed archiving skills, Whitlam grinned. I've been doing a bit of research on Kiwara's sporting history, for my own interest really, and I came across that. Thought you'd like it. It's great. Thank you. Keep it. It's only a copy. I can show you where to find the original one day if you want. There'd probably be other photos from around the same time. He might be in more of them. Thanks, Scott. Really. Oh, what a great find. Whitlam leaned against the desk. He pulled one of the crumpled anti-fork flyers out of his back pocket and screwed it up. He chucked it at the bin. He went straight in. I'm sorry about Sandra, Whitlam said. She wasn't finding it easy to adjust to life here anyway. The idea of a relaxing country escape hasn't quite worked out like either of us thought. And this terrible business with the Hadlers has made everything worse. We thought we were moving here to get away from anything like that. Feels like a frying pan fire scenario. What happened to the Hadlers is so rare though, Fork said. I know, but... Whitlam glanced at the door. The hallway outside was empty. He lowered his voice. She's hypersensitive to any kind of violence. Keep it to yourself, but... I was mugged back in Melbourne and it ended... Well, badly. He looked again at the door, but having started, seemed to need to unburden himself. I'd been at a mate's 40th in Footscray and took a shortcut through a laneway to the station, you know, like everyone does. But this time, these four blokes were there. Still kids, really, but they had knives. They blocked the way, and me and this other man, I didn't know him, just some other poor sod taking a shortcut, we were stuck. They did the whole routine, demanded wallets and phones, but somewhere it went wrong. I got spooked, lashed out. I was beaten up, kicked, fractured ribs, the works. But the other guy took a knife to the guts, bled out, all over the asphalt. Whitlam swallowed. I had to leave him there to go and find help, because the bastards had stolen my mobile. By the time I got back, the ambulance had arrived, but it was too late. Paramedics said he was already dead. Whitlam looked down and fiddled with a paperclip for a long moment. He shook his head as though to clear the thought. Anyway, so there was that, and then this. So you see why Sandra's not happy. He gave a weak smile. But you could probably say the same about almost anyone in town right now. Fork tried to think of a single exception. He couldn't.
Chapter 22 Back in his room, Fawkes stood at the window and stared down at the empty main street below. Whitlam had driven him back to the pub and given him a friendly wave in full view of passers-by. Fawkes had watched him go, then walked around to the car park to check if his paintwork looked as bad as he remembered. It was worse. The word scratched into the car had shone in the fading light and for good measure someone had shoved a handful of the fork flyers under the windshield wiper. He'd slipped up the pub stairs unnoticed and spent the rest of the evening lying on his bed and going through the last of the Hadler's files. His eyes were stinging. It was late, but he could still feel his nerves tingling from Sandra Whitlam's bottomless cup of coffee. Outside his window he watched a lone car cruise by with its lights on and a possum the size of a small cat scuttle along a power line her baby on her back. Then the street was quiet again. Country quiet. That's partly what took city natives like the Whitlams by surprise, Falk thought. The quiet. He could understand them seeking out the idyllic country lifestyle. A lot of people did. The idea had an enticing, wholesome glow when it was weighed up from the back of a traffic jam or while crammed into a gardenless apartment. They all had the same visions of breathing fresh, clean air and knowing their neighbours. The kids would eat homegrown veggies and learn the value of an honest day's work. On arrival, as the empty moving truck disappeared from sight, they gazed around and were always taken aback by the crushing vastness of the open land. The space was the thing that hit them first. There was so much of it. There was enough to drown in. To look out and see not another soul between you and the horizon could be a strange and disturbing sight. Soon, they discovered that the veggies didn't grow as willingly as they had in the city window box. That every single green shoot had to be coaxed and prized from the reluctant soil, and the neighbours were too busy doing the same on an industrial scale to muster much cheer in their greetings. There was no daily bumper-to-bumper commute, but there was also nowhere much to drive to. Fork didn't blame the Whitlams, he'd seen it many times before when he was a kid. Arrivals looked around at the barrenness and the scale and the sheer bloody hardness of the land and before long their faces all said exactly the same thing. I didn't know it was like this. He turned away, remembering how the rawness of local life had seeped into the kids' paintings at the school. Sad faces and brown landscapes. Billy Hadler's pictures had been happier, Falk thought. He'd seen them dotted around the farmhouse, colourful and stiff with dried paint. Aeroplanes with smiling people in the windows. A lot of variations on cars. At least Billy hadn't been sad like some of the other kids, Falk thought. He almost laughed out loud at the absurdity. Billy was dead, but at least he wasn't sad. Until the end. At the end, he would have been terrified. Falk tried for the hundredth time to imagine Luke chasing down his own son. He could conjure up the scene, but it was hazy and wouldn't quite come into focus. Falk thought back to his last meeting with Luke, five years ago, on an unmemorable grey day in Melbourne, when the rain was still a nuisance rather than a blessing. By then, Falk had to admit to himself, in a lot of ways he felt he'd barely known Luke at all. Falk spotted Luke immediately across the Federation Square bar. Harried, damp and straight from work, Falk was just another man in a grey suit.
Luke, even freshly liberated from a lengthy suppliers' convention, still had an energy that was hard to miss. He leaned now against a pillar with a beer in his hand and an amused smile on his face, surveying the early evening crowd of British backpackers and bored youths dressed head to toe in black. He greeted Fogg with a beer and a slap on the shoulder. Wouldn't trust him to shear a sheep with a haircut like that, Luke said without lowering his voice. He pointed his drink at a skinny young guy sporting a style that was half shaved, half mohawk and almost certainly expensive. Fogg smiled back, but wondered why Luke felt he had to trot out the country boy comments every time they met. He ran a complex six-figure agribusiness in Kiwara, but played the country mouse in the big city card without fail. Still, it was an easy shorthand excuse for the gap that seemed wider to bridge every time they met. Fork bought a round of drinks and asked after Barb, Jerry, Gretchen. All were fine, apparently. Nothing to report. Luke asked how Fork was coping since his father had died the year before. OK, Fork said, equal parts surprised and grateful his friend had remembered to ask. And that girl Fork had been seeing? Again, surprise. Good, thanks. She was moving in. Luke grinned. Jesus, watch out for that. Once they've got their throw cushions installed on your sofa, you never get them out. They'd laughed, the ice broken. Luke's son Billy was one now and growing fast. Luke pulled up photos on his phone. Lots of them. Fork scrolled through with the polite forbearance of the childless. He listened as Luke reeled off anecdotes about fellow suppliers at the conference, people Fork had never known. In return, Luke feigned interest as Fork spoke about his work, playing down the desk work and ramping up the entertaining bits. Good on ya, Luke would always say. Bang up those thieving bastards. But he said it in a way that implied very gently that chasing men in business suits wasn't real police work. On this occasion, though, Luke was more interested. It wasn't just men in suits this time. A footballer's wife had been found dead with thousands of dollars of cash in a pair of suitcases by the bed. Fork had been called in to help trace the bills. It was a weird one. She'd been found in the bathtub. Drowned. The word slipped out before he could stop it and hung in the air between them. Fork cleared his throat. Has there been any trouble in Kiwara for you lately? He didn't have to specify what kind. Luke shook his head briskly. Nah, mate, not for years. I told you last time. Fork felt an automatic thank you forming on his lips, but for some reason he couldn't bring himself to say it. Not again. Instead, he paused and watched as his friend stared past him. He wasn't sure what it was that made him want to push it, but this time he felt a flash of irritation. He was perhaps just fractious from work, hungry and tired and keen to get home, Or maybe he was fed up with always having to feel grateful to this man, feeling that whichever way the cards came up, Luke could be relied on to deal himself the stronger hand. You ever going to tell me where you really were that day? Fork said. Luke dragged his gaze back at that. Mate, I have told you, he said. A thousand times I was shooting those rabbits. Yeah, all right. Fork stopped himself rolling his eyes. That had always been the answer, ever since he'd first asked several years earlier. It had never rung completely true. Luke rarely went shooting alone. 
and Fork could still remember Luke's face at his bedroom window all those years ago. His memory of the night was coloured by fear and relief. That was true. But the story had always felt plucked from the air. Luke was watching him closely. Maybe I should be asking you where you were, Luke said, his voice artificially light. If we're going down that road again. Fork stared at him. You know where I was. Fishing. At the river. Upstream, thanks. But alone. Fork didn't answer. So I guess I'll have to take your word for it, Luke said, and took a sip, his eyes never leaving Fork's. Luckily, your word is as good as gold for me, mate. But seems it'd better be all round if you and I stuck to shooting rabbits together, don't you reckon? The two men watched each other as the noise of the bar rose and fell around them. Fork considered his options. Then he sipped his beer and shut his mouth. Eventually they made their obligatory excuses about trains to catch and early starts. As they shook hands for what would prove to be the last time, Fork found himself struggling to remember, once again, why they were still friends. Fork got into bed and turned off the light. He lay still for a long time. The huntsman had reappeared during the evening and its shadowy figure now crouched above the bathroom door. The night was dead silent outside. Fork knew he needed to get some sleep, but fragments of recent and long-gone conversations jostled for his attention. Traces of caffeine zipping through his system helped prop his eyes open. He rolled over and switched on the bedside light. The library books he'd taken from Barb earlier that day were lying under his hat on a chair. He'd drop them through the returns chute tomorrow. He picked up the first one, a practical guide to growing an eco-friendly succulent garden. He yawned just reading the title. That would almost certainly do the trick, but he simply couldn't face it. The other was a battered paperback crime novel. A woman, an unknown figure lurking in the shadows, a body count, standard stuff. Not quite to his taste, but he wouldn't be in the job he was in if he didn't enjoy a good mystery. He lay back against the pillow and started to read. It was an obvious storyline, nothing special, and Fork was about 30 pages in before his eyes started to feel heavy. He decided to put the book down at the end of the chapter, and as he turned a page, a thin slip of paper fluttered out and landed on his face. He plucked it off and squinted at it. It was a printed library receipt showing that the novel had been lent to Karen Hadler on Monday, February 19. Four days before she died, Falk thought. She'd used the receipt to mark her place, and the realisation that this mediocre thriller could have been the last thing she'd read in her life made him feel deeply depressed. Falk had started to crumple the receipt before he noticed the pen markings on the back. Curious, he smoothed out the slip of paper and flipped it over. He was expecting a shopping list. Instead, he felt his heart start to thud. He pressed the creases out more carefully now and thrust it under the bedside light to better illuminate Karen's looping, cursive script. At some point in the four days between when Karen Hadler borrowed the book from the library and when she was shot dead on her doorstep, she had scrawled two lines on the back of the receipt. The first was a single word slightly messy, written in a hasty hand and underlined three times. Grant. 
Falk tried to focus, but his gaze was dragged down to a ten-digit phone number written underneath. He stared at the number until his eyes watered and the digits swarmed and blurred. The blood pounded through his skull with a throbbing, deafening roar. He blinked hard, then again, but the numbers remained resolutely in the same order. Falk didn't waste a single moment wondering who the phone number belonged to. He didn't need to. He knew it well. It was his own. Chapter 23 They found Grant Dow the next morning on all fours under a woman's sink. He had a spanner in hand and his fleshy crack on display. Oi, will he be back to fix that leak? The woman asked as Dow was dragged to his feet. I wouldn't count on it, Rako said. The woman's children watched in wide-eyed glee as Dow was led out to the marked police car. Their expressions mirrored Rako's just a few hours earlier when Fork had produced the receipt. Rako had paced around the station, bouncing on the balls of his feet, the adrenaline pumping. Your number, he said over and over again. Why did Karen Hadler want to talk to you about Grant? Fork, who had been awake most of the night asking himself the very same thing, could only shake his head. I don't know. If she tried, she definitely didn't leave a message. I've gone through my missed calls history. No match for Karen's home, work or mobile number, and I know I never spoke to her. Not just recently. Ever. Not once in her whole life. She would have known who you were though, right? Luke still spoke about you. Barb and Jerry Hadler saw you on TV the other month. But why are you? Rako picked up the office phone and dialed the ten digits. He looked at Fork as he held the receiver to his ear. Fork's mobile trilled loudly in his hand. He couldn't hear the message as his answering machine clicked in, but he knew what it said. He'd listened to his own voice speak enough times overnight as he'd dialed the number from his room phone in disbelief. You've reached Federal Agent Aaron Fork. Please leave a message, the recording said. Short and sweet. Rako hung up and stared at him. Think. I have. Well, think harder. Grant Dow and Luke didn't get along, we know that, but if Karen was having problems with him, why didn't she call the station here? Are you sure she didn't try? No calls made to police or emergency services from any phone owned by any of the Hadlers in the week before their deaths, Rako recited. We pulled the phone records the day the bodies were found. He picked up the novel and turned it over in his hands, examining the cover. He thumbed through the pages yet again. There was nothing else caught between them. What's the book about? It's a female detective investigating a string of student deaths at a college in the US, said Fork, who had stayed up most of the night speed reading to the end. She thinks it's a disgruntled bloke from town targeting rich kids. Sounds crap. Did he do it? Oh, uh, no, it's not what it seems. Turns out it was the mother of one of the girls in the sorority house. The mother of... Christ, give me strength. Rako pinched the bridge of his nose. He shut the novel with a loud slap. So what do we reckon? Is this bloody book supposed to mean something or what? I don't know. I don't think Karen got to the end, for whatever that's worth. And I checked with the library as soon as it opened. They say she borrowed a lot of this type of thing. Rako sat down, stared blankly at the receipt for a moment, then stood straight back up again. You're sure she never called you? Hundred percent. Right. Come on then. He grabbed his car keys from the desk. You can't tell us, Karen can't tell us, Luke can't tell us. 
So let's all in the only person left who might be able to explain why his bloody name's written on a piece of paper in a dead woman's bedroom. They left Dow to stew in the interview room for over an hour. I called Clyde, Rako said, calmer now, told them some asshole finance investigator from Melbourne had shown up to sort out the Hadler's paperwork. Said you had a couple of questions about a document found at the property. Did they want to come and babysit you while you asked them? They've declined, unsurprisingly. You're right to go ahead. Ah, nice work, Falk said, surprised. It occurred to him he hadn't even thought to call Clyde this time. So what do we know? Dow's fingerprints weren't found anywhere at the farm. That doesn't mean anything. That's what gloves are for. How's his alibi for the murders? Rako shook his head. Solid and hollow at the same time. He was digging a ditch in the middle of nowhere with two of his mates. We'll check, obviously, but they'll all swear blind he was there. All right, let's see what he says. Dow was leaning back in his chair, arms crossed, staring straight ahead. He barely glanced up as they entered the room. About time, he said. Some of us have got a living to make. You want your lawyer here, Grant? Rako said as he pulled his chair out. You can. Dow frowned. His lawyer would probably come from the same theoretical firm as Sullivan's, Falk thought. Property and livestock 50 weeks of the year. Dow shook his head. Got nothing to hide. Get on with it. He was angry rather than nervous, Falk was interested to note. Falk laid out his folder on the table and paused for a moment. Describe your relationship with Karen Hadler. Masturbatory. Anything else? Bearing in mind she was found murdered. Dow shrugged, unfazed. No. But you found her attractive, Falk said. You seen her before she cucked it, of course. Falk and Rako said nothing, and Dow rolled his eyes. Look, she was all right, I suppose, for round here anyway, he said. When was the last time you spoke to her? Dow shrugged. Can't remember. What about the Monday before she died, 19th of February? Or the following two days. Seriously, couldn't tell you. Dow shifted and his seat creaked under his bulk. Listen, do I have to be here legally? I've got shitloads to do. We'll cut to the chase then, Falk broke in. Perhaps you could tell us why your name, Grant, was written by Karen Hadler on a receipt in the week she was murdered. He slid a photocopy of the slip of paper across the table. The only sound in the room was the hum of fluorescent lights as Dow stared at it for a long moment. Without warning, he slammed his palm down on the table. They both jumped. You are not pinning this on me! Dow sent a fine mist of spittle across the tabletop. Pinning what on you, Grant? Rako's voice was determinedly neutral. That bloody family. If Luke goes and shoots up his wife and kid, that's his business. He pointed a thick finger at them both. But that has got bugger all to do with me, you hear me? Where were you the afternoon they were shot? Fork asked. Dow shook his head, his eyes never leaving Fork's. His shirt collar was ripe with sweat. Mate, you can get stuffed. You did enough damage with Ellie, you're not going to take down me and my uncle as well. This is a witch hunt. Rako cleared his throat before Fork could answer. All right, Grant. His voice was calm. We're just trying to get some answers, so let's make it as easy as we can. 
You've told officers from Clyde you were ditch-digging out along Eastway with your two workmates you've listed here. You stand by that? Yeah, I was. All day. And they'll back that up, will they? They'd better, seeing as it's the truth. Dow managed to look them in the eyes as he said it. A fly droned in frantic circles around their heads as the silence stretched out. Tell me, Grant, what will you do with the farm when your uncle dies? Falk said. Dow looked confused at the change of subject. Eh? You're all set to inherit, I heard. So what? I've earned it. He snapped. For what? Letting your uncle live in his own property while he's old and sick? That takes a big man. Truthfully, Falk didn't see any reason why Dow shouldn't inherit, but the comments seemed to have hit a sore spot. Little bit more than that, smartass. Dow opened his mouth to say something, then thought better of it. He closed it before speaking again. Anyway, why not? I'm his family. All that's left of it since Ellie died, eh? Fork ploughed on as Dow sucked in a breath in outrage. So you'll sell the property when you can? Too right I will. I'm not about to try and farm it, am I? I'm not a fool. Not when there's all those Chinese jumping out of their little yellow skins to buy land out here, even shit land like ours. And like the Hadlers? Dow paused. I suppose. Baby Charlotte's probably even less keen to lug around bags of fertiliser than you. I hear it'll come up for sale sooner or later, two properties side by side. Fork shrugged. That's a lot more attractive to overseas investors, which is interesting in itself, but especially when the owner of one ended up shot in the head. For once, Dow didn't open his mouth to reply, and Fork knew he'd come to the same conclusion. Let's get back to Karen. Fork sees the advantage to change tack. You ever try it on with her? What? Romantically, sexually. Dow snorted. Do me a favour. Right ice queen, that one. Wouldn't waste my breath. You think she'd have knocked you back, Fork said. That must have been annoying. I get plenty, thanks, mate. Don't you worry about me. The way you're panning around town after Gretchen, you've got enough on your plate worrying about yourself. Fork ignored the comment. Did Karen dent your ego? You argue with her about something? Things get a bit messy? What? No. Dow's eyes flicked left and right. But you fell out with her husband, frequently from what we've heard, Rako said. So what? That was always about nothing. Just Luke being a prick. Had bugger all to do with his missus. There was a pause. When Falk spoke again, his voice was quiet. Grant, we're going to check your movements that day and maybe your mates are going to back you up. The point is that some alibis are a bit like that plasterboard you work with. They hold up initially, but put them under pressure and they crumble pretty damn swiftly. Dow looked down for a moment. When he raised his head, his attitude had shifted. He smiled, a calculating, full-bodied grin that hit his eyes. What? Like your alibi, you mean? For why my cousin wrote your bloody name before she died? The silence stretched taut as three pairs of eyes looked at the photocopied receipt on the table. Fork had been far more shaken when his own name was discovered among Ellie's possessions than Dow seemed about this. 
He was wondering what to make of that when Dow barked a laugh. Good thing my yarn is built of solid brick, isn't it? You test it, mate. Be my guest. Don't get me wrong, I had no time for the Hadlers, and yeah, I'll be selling my uncle's farm the first chance I get. But I didn't kill them. I wasn't at that farm, and if you want to put me there, you're going to have to stitch me up. And you know what? He banged the table with his fist. The sound was like a shot. I'm not sure you've got the balls. If you were there, Grant, we'll prove it. He smirked. (laughs) See you bloody try. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.